Hello, it's Tech Fighter Worldwide for the week of March 2nd, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news and a lot less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. This week, it's Zoho for your small office or home office. You probably have heard, maybe you've used Google Documents, Word Processor, Spreadsheet, Presentations. This is a product that raises the blood pressure around Redmond, Washington. Microsoft doesn't like it because it competes with Word, Excel, and PowerPoint. You may not have heard of Zoho yet, but it also competes with Microsoft. It does so on a much broader front. Zoho adds project management, customer relations management, a wiki application, and a lot more. Zoho has been around since 2005. It is a subsidiary of AdventNet. That was a company founded in 1996, and their stated goal at that time was to create affordable software for business. For a company such as that to challenge Microsoft is ironic. When Microsoft got started, it was little more than a garage operation, and it came out of nowhere to challenge IBM for supremacy. And now, another startup is challenging Microsoft. But the irony goes beyond that. Twenty-five years ago, all computing was centralized. You might have had a terminal on your desk, but the application lived on a mainframe, or perhaps if you worked at a more modern company, on a mini-computer. Files were all stored on the main computer, the mainframe or the mini. Your documents were available from wherever you were on the corporate network. Desktop computers suddenly appeared. They were new. They were brought in because they had the ability to distribute the processing power throughout the organization, and this was new. When you look at what Zoho has to offer, it's really pretty amazing. Writer, spreadsheet, a presentation program, a wiki, a notebook, kind of a note-taker, a mail program, projects, customer relations management, a web conferencing function, a database application, an online organizer, chat, and on and on and on. Then there are some utilities. One monitors your website constantly, lets you know if there's a problem with your website. You can view and share documents online with Zoho Viewer. You can conduct polls with Zoho Polls. And most of these have a free version. And even those that you have to pay for, if you decide to, that you need more than just what the basic functions are, even if you have to pay for them, the cost is remarkably little, sometimes as little as 50 cents a month for an individual application. Well, now the trend is to serve applications across the Internet. 25 years ago, that couldn't have happened. First of all, the Internet wasn't widely available 25 years ago. It was a closed system. And it was extremely slow at that time. Dial-up modems were all we had, and they weren't very fast. Well, now it's possible to combine the advantages of desktop computers with the advantages of centralized processing. Applications such as Zoho Writer and Google Docs aren't as feature-rich as Word, but they do make your documents available wherever you go, so long as you have an Internet connection. And they make it possible for many users to share and work on a single document. So instead of sending Word documents or PDFs, some public relations professionals now just send a link to a document on Google or Zoho. If anybody at Microsoft tells you this isn't a point of concern, that person is lying. 
Users can switch easily among the various Zoho applications. So now, Microsoft is battling WordPerfect, which has become kind of an also-ran. OpenOffice, which still hasn't really caught on. Google, certainly a household name. Zoho, one you probably haven't heard of, but you will. And others who see an opportunity where Microsoft may stumble. If you've read about dinosaurs and how they were undone by tiny mammals, the story's outcome, as far as Microsoft is concerned, may already seem apparent to you. Zoho even offers a PowerPoint-like application. Wide variety of options available make it clear why small companies are embracing this kind of technology. But beyond the obvious advantage of low expense, there are some challenges. These kinds of applications make security experts and IT professionals nervous because proprietary data is stored on servers that are not under control of the company. And because the applications depend on the Internet, no matter how robust the network is, a single cable cut can take an entire company offline. These are things that concern large companies more than smaller companies. And as long as you maintain a local copy of files stored on Internet-based servers, you're probably safe. Bottom line for Zoho, you can't beat the price. Although Zoho offers several fee-based services, the prices are all more than reasonable. This could simply be a loss leader, a come-on for later price hikes. But no matter, right now this is a company that should have Microsoft execs trying to find a way to counterattack. And indeed, Microsoft has its own online office suite. It is nowhere as robust as Zoho. Four cats for Zoho. Now here's a message in my inbox. The message was promising. As requested, it said, a Nikon D40 camera. Well, I hadn't requested a Nikon D40 camera because I already own a D200, so what was that all about? The message that claims to be from Consumer Research Corporation didn't mention a D40 once I decided to read the message. Of course, I knew it was spam. But it suggested that I could get a Canon 30D for free. All I had to do was review it. Now, as somebody who reviews hardware, I know that cameras are not given to reviewers. Legitimate reviewers receive hardware that they are allowed to use for a while, usually a week or two, and then they are expected to return it. Sometimes the company that provides the hardware for review will offer to sell it to the reviewer, but the price typically is only a few dollars shy of what the reviewer would spend to buy the item at a store. So, in other words, the offer is guaranteed to be fraudulent, and the fine print didn't help me to believe in the offer because it was a graphic Instead of text, the graphic whispered, This offer is sponsored exclusively by ProductTestPanel.com and is subject to terms and conditions. See website for complete details. Participation eligibility is restricted to U.S. residents 18 and over. Canon Incorporated has not endorsed this promotion, nor is it affiliated or connected with this promotion in any way. Reading the fine print made me think of a car commercial. You hear the car commercial, they tell you you're going to get a brand new car, for $250 a month. Of course, they shout all of that information, but then at the end they speak very quickly and tell you what they're not going to give you. But they do it so fast that you can't actually hear them. And besides that, the music is usually playing rather loudly at this point. Okay, so clearly a fraud. I did a bit of Google research on Consumer Research Corporation, and what I found was about what I expected. Fraud reports. Now, Consumer Research Corporation might be a legitimate company. I didn't check into it any further. 
At least it is an organization that is concerned about the misuse of its name, because if you go to the Consumer Research Corporation website, the first thing that appears is a big warning right at the top of the first page. Warning, if you have received a letter claiming to be from Consumer Research Corporation, please click here for an important fraud alert. So the bottom line, if you receive an offer that appears too good to be true, it most likely is. TechBiter Worldwide is in Ohio, and in a couple of days, it's time to vote. It's the March primary. And in a couple of days, I'll be spending another day working for the Franklin County Board of Elections. Technology continues to change, and will certainly change more by November. After last November's election, I wrote about security at the polling places and said I felt that security was good. But I also raised the question of vote tampering as the results move upstream. No system is perfect. Vote rigging is as old as voting. The vast majority of elections officials are probably interested in accurate and fair elections. Certainly that was the case with everyone that I have encountered so far from the Board of Elections here. But that doesn't mean the results are safe. The Ohio Secretary of State has ordered local boards of election to provide paper ballots for any voters who prefer not to use machines. So the Franklin County Board of Elections is printing, or has printed, 30,000 paper ballots in addition to the 50,000 provisional ballots that have to be used in some cases. Franklin County has 780,000 registered voters. The voting machines used in Franklin County have a real-time audit log. The RTAL records every action a voter takes, but the tape is hard for most voters to read, and it stays with the voting machine. Results are also recorded on flash memory cards. It's the same kind of card you'll find in a digital camera. And yet another copy is recorded on a separate storage device. That device and the flash cards are returned with certain other records on election night, hand-delivered by the presiding judge of the precinct. The RTAL copy is returned to the Board of Elections along with the machines. Because the RTAL is hard to read, and because most people don't have the time, interest, or knowledge to examine the tape, The machine could be rigged, and all of the records could show the same incorrect results. From a programming perspective, that would be a relatively trivial exercise to ensure that any given machine or group of machines produces a specific result. Because the machines are essentially black boxes that run on proprietary software that boards of elections are not privy to, a single rogue programmer could affect elections nationally. Now, I'm not saying that this has occurred. I'm not even saying it's likely to occur. The fact is it could occur, and that should be of concern to election officials and voters alike. There have been some suggested solutions. For example, machines could print a copy of the ballot cast by the voter. The voter would take the copy home. Now, the problem with that is that it would invite vote fraud, vote-buying schemes. If voters can prove how they voted, then they can sell their votes to political machines, so that would not be a good way to go. A variation on that theme would give each voter a copy of someone else's ballot. You wouldn't know who cast the ballot. You'd just have that person's votes and a number of some sort. Because the voters would not be known to each other, privacy would be assured, and the voters don't receive copies of their own ballots, so they couldn't sell their vote based on that printed copy. That system would rely on random numbers of voters contacting the Board of Elections to confirm that votes on their ballots were counted as cast. (sighs) The opportunity for confusion and misunderstanding there would be enormous, so that doesn't sound good either. The best suggestion I've heard works this way. 
each voting machine would print a paper ballot. The machine would work as it does now. It would record the votes electronically for faster results. But should the election be contested, then it would be the paper ballot that would count because the voter would actually have the opportunity to examine the marks on the ballot before leaving the polling place and confirm that the paper ballot exactly reflects the voter's intent. If there's a discrepancy, it would be obvious where it came from. The paper ballot would be placed in a ballot box, returned to the Board of Elections. Counting would be accomplished either by optically scanning the ballots or by using the numbers from the machines themselves. Because the ballots have been machine printed, there should be no question about partially filled boxes, undervotes, overvotes, hanging chads, any of that stuff. But this is still where a rogue programmer could influence the voting by having the optical scanner flip votes. But again, the paper ballots would be available for a recount should one be requested. Now that seems like a pretty good method, and one that would be very difficult to tamper with. It also seems to me that this should not be a political issue, although sometimes it seems to be. Why should any honest politician, and that is not an oxymoron, why should any honest politician, any honest election worker, or any honest voter want anything other than a clear and accurate count of the votes. If you live in Franklin County, Ohio, the Board of Elections has a website where you can confirm that you are registered to vote and where your polling place is. There's a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. If you live anywhere in the state of Ohio, you can get more information from the Secretary of State's website. There's a link to that site from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And if you live outside Ohio but in the United States, your Secretary of State will have additional helpful information, as should any board of election in any county or parish nationwide. So be involved. Make sure you vote. In early news, we seem to live in an asylum that is run by the inmates. This week, our great ally Pakistan demanded that the inter- their Internet service providers block YouTube. The ISPs did that. The problem was that there was content on YouTube that the government found insulting. When people complained to their ISPs, they were told that they should instead complain to YouTube and demand that the service remove the insulting content. When people asked what that insulting content was, the ISPs had no answer. Well, now YouTube is back in Pakistan. The content consisted of movie clips based on an upcoming movie by a Dutch lawmaker Geert Wilder. Wilder takes the position that Islam is a fascist religion that encourages violence, particularly against women and homosexuals. The clips in question have been removed, and the Pakistan Telecommunications Authority notified its 70-plus Internet service providers that they could remove the blocks on YouTube. YouTube has also been blocked in Turkey because of clips that allegedly insult that country's founder. It's the second time Turkey has banned the site because Turkish law makes it illegal to insult Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. Can you imagine laws in the United States that would make it illegal to speak in critical terms of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, or Abraham Lincoln? Well, maybe these days I could. In a battle between truth and what is called patriotism, I suspect that truth will always lose. Along a similar vein, according to Wired, The U.S. Army has ordered soldiers to stop posting to blogs or sending personal email messages without first clearing the content with a superior officer. Well, that's old news. It's actually from last year. Now, something like this certainly is reasonable. You place restrictions on what soldiers can post or say from a war zone during World War II. All mail was censored. 
at least all mail from the war zone. But now the Air Force takes it a step further, limiting what members of the service can read. Wired says the Air Force is tightening restrictions on which blogs its troops can read, cutting off access to just about any independent site with the word blog in its web address. It's the latest move in a larger struggle within the military over the value and the hazards of those sites. At least one senior Air Force official calls the squeeze so utterly stupid it makes me want to scream. Right now, if you're in the Air Force and on base, you can't view any sites. Any sites. Hosted by Blogspot. Again, quoting Wired, airmen posting online have cited instances of seemingly innocuous sites, such as educational databases and some work-related sites getting wrapped up in broad proxy filters. One Air Force officer said that a couple of years ago he fought the issue concerning the counterterrorism blog. An Air Force professional education course website recommended it as a great source for daily worldwide counterterrorism news. However, it had been banned because it called itself a blog. Lieutenant General William B. Caldwell IV, head of the Combined Arms Center in Fort Leavenworth, disagrees with the policy. He says that soldiers should be encouraged to get onto blogs and send their YouTube videos to their friends and family. The Wired Report says, and I quote, Within the Air Force, there is also a strong contingent that wants to see open access to the sites and is mortified by the restrictions. One senior Air Force official wrote in an email, quote, I am certain that by blocking blogs for official use, our airmen will never ever be able to read them on their own home computers. So we have indeed saved them from a contaminating influence. Oh, sorry, didn't mean to drip sarcasm on your rug, end quote. You know, we trust these people, these soldiers with weapons that can kill tens, hundreds, or thousands of people at a time. But we don't trust them with ideas? Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of March 2nd, 2008. Don't forget to vote. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website www.techbiter.com. And if you want, you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.